What's up, everybody? This is Grant, that cause artist. Welcome to another episode of the Disruptors for Good podcast. And today we're going to do things a little differently. I'm going to take it uh, very local uh, to here in Kansas City and, and talk to Andy Rieger, who is the co founder and president of J. Rieger & Co. Distillery uh, here in Kansas City. It's a, a massive, massive project that he and his team over the last few years have executed with amazing perfection, uh, a 60,000 square foot distilling facility um, here in Kansas City that's really one of a kind to the country. And it's been an amazing sort of journey to to watch them from afar, grow the brand, grow the facility, grow the community through through this uh, destination that they have created. And, you know, it's been a tough time for obviously everybody across the country, across the world, being in the service industry. And I really wanted to reach out to him and, and kind of see if he had some time to really chat about what's going on, right? What do the front lines look like for a president and a co-founder of a major company in a city that employs nearly 100 people, you know, in, in some sort of fashion on a daily basis? What that looks like now in, in a world where things have changed. And we talk about a bunch of different things from turning this 60,000 square foot facility into creating hand sanitizers for the community, for the hospitals, uh, for the police department, uh, for consumers here locally, what that shift looks like and, you know, the process of doing that. Like, I mean, that's a crazy thing to think, uh, you know, if I would have told him six months ago that his entire distillery would be now be producing full-time hand sanitizer. I mean, it, it's just a sort of crazy, crazy time that we live in. And it's, I think it's, uh, it's really a, a testament to him and his team, all the workers there in the community getting behind something like this. Now their hand sanitizer are going to be in local supermarkets and grocery stores where people now have easier access to it. So it's uh, it's really been, it was, it's really an, an inspiring story and conversation that we had. And they're currently still trying to do things, you know, for the community and, and supporting uh, all kind of projects going on right now. And one that I'm proud to be a part of is EmojiMyCity.com. We're making apparel um, locally for Kansas City that go back to to help sort of the service workers and the service industry here in Kansas City. And Jay Rieger is matching everything we raised through that to provide hand sanitizer to to those who are on the front lines. So I'll link to more of that in, in, in the show notes. But I really want to uh, have everybody really try to listen the entire episode. I mean, it's just such a it's such a, a light into what's going on you know, boots on the ground every day, a, a company that, you know, not only it, it's it's Kansas City based and not only does it affect the Kansas City community, but there's companies uh, like this all across our country right now trying to shift their mentality, try to keep their workers employed, being innovative in their approach on how do we do that? <laughs> and I think this is a really great example of how companies and, you know, brands and innovation can play a part in this recovery and what we're trying to to get out of here and you know it's just uh what can you say man i mean where are uh there's so many people struggling out there and there's so many people trying to help and and some people want to help but don't know how right and it's it's this sort of back and forth of, of what do I do right now in this time? So I, I just, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation with Andy and, and I really appreciate him taking the time because I know he is, uh, he's dealing with a lot right now and him and his wife are just doing an amazing job trying to lead, you know, the community and their employees through some tough times right now. So shout out to all their team over there and uh, keep up the great work and we're rooting for you. Appreciate you uh, listening. As always, if you have any questions, just grant at causeartist.com. 
and uh, we'll see you next week. So usually I like to start with uh, individual's journey on, on how they sort of uh, get to to start their, their sort of life's work. Usually a lot of people I talk to, they're basically in their life's work. And it seems like uh, this is probably that for you in a bunch of different ways. Uh, so just give us a little background on the distillery itself and what made you start it. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Kansas City and moved to Dallas, went to school down there then worked in private equity and then investment banking. And during that time that I actually lost my father to cancer and that sort of changed my perception a little bit as to, you know, what life was, what was worth it, what wasn't worth it. And one of the things that he said to me pretty strongly when he had his battle was he said, whatever you do, don't move back to Kansas city unless you have a reason. Don't move back because of me. And didn't really know what that meant, but then slowly but surely to sort of then hit on where I became like a huge family history fanatic. So I always knew growing up that my family had a distillery that they started back in 1887. And uh, they had built a hotel in downtown Kansas City, and it all died with Prohibition. Everything went away at Prohibition. So it was a cool thing and a cool story to know growing up, but it doesn't really have much weight going forward because when you're growing up, you care more about, you know, are you getting dessert after dinner? (laughs) So there was no, no real effort behind actually understanding it. But once my dad got sick, I kind of realized that if I didn't learn everything, the history would really die. So I started learning it a little bit. And during that time as well, uh, a couple of guys were going to start a restaurant in the old Rieger Hotel building. And they were the top bar and top chef in the city that were partnering up to do this concept. And one of the requests my dad gave me was he said, if I'm not around when this opens up, please make sure that you go when you're back in town so that it can be this, you know, someone from the Rieger family is actually there and like congratulating them. So he passed away five months before they opened, four months before they opened, I went in and it was like my mission to really like ensure they did well. Right. And took them a bunch of materials that they could hang on the wall. So that it really had that authentic family feel, which they were going for. And doing that kind gesture really led to the cocktail guy saying, well, you know about the distillery, right? And I go, yeah, he goes, well, someday we should partner up and do that. And had no idea who he was, thought he was totally nuts. Crazy. <laughs> so that was December of 2010. So then skip forward, we kept in touch, but skip forward a year later to December of 11. And I was coming back to Kansas City and he just asked for me to go to lunch with him on Christmas Eve. So we went to lunch and he put forward this, you know, really rough draft of a business plan. And he goes, I really want to do this. And, you know, I want your blessing more than, more or less. And I, I thought it was still a silly concept and silly idea. And so I didn't want anything to do with it, but I wanted to see him do it. And I wanted to be able to come back to Kansas City and, you know, yeah. visit him when I would come back to Kansas City. So I said, you know, I'm, I do investment banking. All I do is like improving business plans, consulting, capital raising. I don't want anything out of this. I don't want to be involved. I don't want to be an investor, but I want to see you do it. So let me, let me get you all the right information, the right reviews, the right questions to do project. Sure, you can do this. This will be really cool. And so that really led from me helping him to me doing everything. And he always said that it was part of his master plan uh, by him not doing any well of the labor. I know he always says that it was very intentional. <laughs> and so what it really led to me into was I sort of conformed his business plan a little bit and turned it into more or less distribution-based business that didn't really have a retail component on the early front end because I was you know really understanding that brands are where all the value is. Yep. And if you can have a really successful brand, you can do anything. But if you just have an establishment, it's really tough to like form a brand out of an establishment. So going that path, 
you know, started asking a lot of the questions of the concerns that most people would think of in that situation. And I said, what if the whiskey sucks four years after you make it? And he was like, oh, it'll be it's fine. A big thing, I, yeah. yeah, right. I mean, big question. he was just like, oh, it'll be great. Like, I know it. And I was like, you have no idea what you're doing. And he's, you know, one of the top cocktail guys in the entire country. And I said, that doesn't work for raising money, though. Right, right. And it's a very different mindset. And he just said, I'll never forget it. We were on the phone. And he goes, well, I mean, I do know the the guy that was the master distiller and chief operating officer of Maker's Mark. He was there for 14 years. I was telling him about this. And he was just like, that's really cool. If I can help in any way, let me know. He's like, should we call him? And I was like, holy shit, man. Yeah, like that's a person we need to call. We need to talk Can to him. Can we guy. do that? Can we call that guy? <laughs> and and so we just like called him and told him everything. And the guy just ends by saying, this is such a cool story. I'm so excited. This is so neat. What a cool brand. What a cool story. The original family member I'm talking to, you guys want to do distribution based. I'm in. I want to be a partner. And it was a little shocking. I was like, oh, okay. And then right after that, I just was like, wow, well, there's a really good person to put on the resume for capital raising of having experts on the team, but how do you sell it? And Ryan, my co-founder again goes, well, I mean, you know, one of my, first off, he said like, oh, I used to work in distribution for a little bit. I know that game. I buy from them all the time. And I said, eh, this is a different scale thing. And he goes, well, my mentor uh, used to do external sales for Diageo and used to do consulting in markets that they were struggling in with the Tanqueray accounts. And I mean, maybe we could just talk to him. And again, it was one of those like, meanwhile, this dream team is being like yeah, assembled like, without even trying. Yeah. Like, who, who is this guy? Like, how do you know him? Like, yeah, let's talk to that guy. And he had the exact same reaction when we spoke to him. He was like, I want to be a part of this. This sounds awesome. And so you had these two guys and then the uh, sales guy was saying the whole time he said, God, you know, we should start a gin program and we should get, and I said, I don't know who that is. I'm, I'm not from your industry. And he and Ryan both look at me and are like, are you kidding me? Tom Nichol is the most legendary gin distiller in the entire world. He runs Tanqueray and he's created Tanqueray number 10, Tanqueray Malacca, two of the most famous gins created in the last hundred years. And I was like, oh yeah, we should get that guy thinking it's just, you know, <laughs> not going to happen. And we ended up getting that guy to come to Kansas City while he was still running Tanqueray. And he decided to take an early retirement from Tanqueray to become a partner and start a gin program in Kansas City. So who knows how, uh, how any of this actually works out. But a lot of those things started to feel a lot like fate right. and what it was supposed to be. And being in Dallas was my then girlfriend, now wife, who just looked at me and said, I really think that we should be moving to Kansas City for this. And I think that this is what your dad was talking about. And so really putting a lot of those common sense pieces together were something that ultimately pushed me forward into understanding that when you're not doing something with emotion behind it, which I wasn't because I didn't think I was actually going to be a part of this, I was looking at it from a very logical perspective, very similar to how I would handle clients in investment banking. You know, you're just being professional, you're being methodical, you're being completely detached from the actual equation so that when you're making your decisions, it isn't something that it is personal. Uh, it's very strategic in how your decision-making process goes. So it was kind of a nice way to set everything up that way because there was no emotion behind it and ended up working for the absolute best. So did that um, in 2014, raised our money early that year, moved to Kansas City, um, quit my job on tax day 2014 in Dallas, moved to Kansas City a week later, just received a bunch of equipment, did setup and all that, and we made... Um, our first sales in late October of that year, right around the time that the Royals made it to their very first World Series. So we had about perfect timing in terms of yeah. opening up 
and Kansas City Pride, and we had a good brand that had a lot of following just from the general connection with the restaurant that had existed at that point for now about four years, and being able to put something forward that the city really loved and they were able to call their own. And so the beginning, it was just, let's just keep this a, a good hometown thing and let's see where it goes. Yeah, I want to kind of paint a picture of the actual scope of the facility, because I think maybe when people hear of sort of distilleries or craft distilleries that, you know, it might be like, you know, a small sort of little, uh, you know, a great little, yeah, yeah, just something that, but like, this is not that, like, I think we have to paint the picture of like, the square footage of this, this massive old brick building and the beautiful restoration that happened, because I know the time and money and effort into, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful places in the city, not just in Kansas City, but anywhere. I mean, I don't know many distilleries that look like this in the entire country. So let's kind of give everybody a little bit of a sense of of the square footage and like the employee size. I mean, the mass operation that has been created here. Yeah. So when we started out, um, we wanted to go to an area in Kansas City that was ripe for manufacturing. And obviously, dollars per square foot is very, very important in that equation, especially when you're not factoring in any form of retail whatsoever. Right. So we went to an area called uh, the general area is known as the East Bottoms, which is actually where the French fur trade or the Belgian fur traders came to Kansas City and set up their trading posts back in the early 1800s. But um, the specific region that we're in is the Electric Park District within the East Bottoms. And it's called that because that was where the original amusement park of Kansas City, Electric Park, was located. So the grounds that we went on were old brewery grounds. It was the Heim Brewery. It was a mass scale brewery that was uh, based in Kansas City in the pre-prohibition years. And the building that we went in initially was a 15,000 square foot warehouse with 20 foot high ceilings. And it was attached to a 48,000 square foot historic, beautiful, as you describe it, red brick building that was the bottling plant for this old brewery. Uh, and that building was built in 1901. So we started out in the 15,000 square feet, just manufacturing. We had, you know, got up to a couple thousand barrels in there. And we saw the writing on the wall just within about two and a half years of taking over that space, realizing that it wasn't really going to last us very long. So sort of did some mapping out and planning, seeing how much square footage we thought we really needed for more or less the next phase. And when we did that, I talked to the owner of that warehouse building who also owned the beautiful old red brick building, which was completely vacant, no utilities, um, three floors, and just said, hey, you know, we've got two and a half years left on our lease. We are not going to be renewing it. We would love to buy the warehouse and the red brick building from you, as well as the acre that became our parking lot. Mm -hmm. But I said, you know, we're not interested in leasing them. And if you're not interested in selling it to us, you have us locked up in rent for the next couple, two and a half years, but we will not be renewing and we'll be moving out of the neighborhood. You know, if you sell it to us at a fair price, we're going to go forward with this project. We're going to do great things for the neighborhood and really make this our home. No pressure, not trying to force anything, but if you're interested, we're, we're interested too. He spent a week talking to his estate planners and just goes, great, let's do it. So it made it pretty easy. And we had already loved the building for two and a half, three years. So it was something that was really special to us because we were truly more or less the, the babysitters for the building on a daily basis. So when we started the project, ultimately, we had to more or less come up with the identity of what it was going to be. And we knew that we had to expand the actual manufacturing element of it, but we had 60,000 square feet to play with. 
<laughs> and the other big thing is we had never done retail on site. We had all of these retail personalities that worked on our team, but we had never had our own retail operation. So we said, you know, that's something that we can really step forward. And now that we've built this brand that our city has gotten behind and really called their own, we have the ability to bring people to this neighborhood for people that wouldn't necessarily even come to this neighborhood. But we yep. have to do something that really makes them want to come to this neighborhood as well, because just yep. our brand could only get them there for the first time. But if it's not yep. spectacular, they might look at it and say it's not worth going back to because it's in a desolate neighborhood. Yep. So that really led to more or less a lot of bubble drawings. But I broke it down into three, <laughs> three facets. And one was um, we had to figure out first impressions. Um, or sorry, we had to figure out carrots, number one. So enough things that got enough people's attention that even if they don't know who we are, they hear about it and they hear about a historical exhibit or public boardrooms or multiple bars on site or a historic yep. exhibit or manufacturing that's very visible or spirits manufacturing or history videos or tastings or gift shops or patio bars you know, just all private events, you know, dinners, breakfasts, brunches, whatever it may be, something that more or less triggers your mind to say, I'll check that out. Because an, everyone amu wants an amusement park for adults, shall we say. Exactly. That's <laughs> I always say that as well. So from that, you get, uh, you get this element where people want to come down and see it. So then you have to focus on what that first impression is. The yep. first impression is going to be, you know, from the minute you pull up into our parking lot, you look at our building, you walk up to our building, you walk into our building, you look right, you look left, you go to the second floor, you go down to the basement, you go outside, you go to the back area, you go to the tasting room, you go into the historical exhibit, where, wherever it is. That first impression has to be so spectacular so that you're continuing the mindset of saying this is really special and what a great place this is, because again, you're still battling with public perception that you're located in a place that they don't really know very well. And being that yep. they don't know it very well, they want to doubt on it until they realize, no, 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 this is, this is a thing and we're here to stay. So then the last one, step three, is going to end up being your experience. And was your experience presented to you up to par with what you had hoped so that you say to yourself, I'm coming back here again multiple times a year bringing people here. When people are in from out of town, I'm showing them what we have here in our city because this isn't a concept that we'd copied off of anywhere. This is something that's totally unique to Kansas City, unique to the building. And we really had to more or less be a standalone real estate development because if other businesses start shooting up around us, we win big time. Big time. But if they don't, then we can't rely on other people's ability to develop property around us. So we just went ahead and developed everything. So that's where ultimately you get to the stage of how do you do something that is creative, is engaging, and is enough for people. And so that's why we have a second floor bar that's 5,000 square feet. It's one style. It has a certain type of food, certain type of drink style. Um, it's loud. It's engaging. There's games up there. There's a 100-inch TV. So it's meant to be this really awesome bar lounge with good food. In the basement, there's like a high-end nightclub down there that by nightclub, I mean like jazz social type club. And yep. it's called the Hey Hey Club. Totally different drink style, different food style, different staff uh, outfits. So it's a completely different experience than the second floor. And then we're in the development phase right now of our patio bar. So that the real identity is, which will be a 20,000-foot patio bar that we're really trying to just create the coolest space down here. 
So um, like the original brick cobblestone streets are out there. Yep. And so it's going to be really, really cool yep. in that sense. But what it is, is it's a third entirely different bar again. And yep. so what you're doing is you're creating this bar scene of these really neat, authentic concepts that while they are all under one more or less roof, they all feel completely different, but they all have the same quality standard, but a different quality standard because each one focuses on something completely different. So the identity and goal there is you take an Uber down here, you stay down here for your five hours that you're out, you've had two or three different concepts or you do a tour as part of it. Yep. You know, we get people that'll get a drink and they'll just walk around the historical exhibit for an hour while the person that they went with says after five minutes, I'm done. I don't care about history. And you just have these all these different things that you can do. And you look at your watch and you're like, holy shit, we've been here for five hours. It's an amazing experience, man. No, it's I think everything you talked about, you've kind of it, it's been sort of executed so perfectly that usually that doesn't happen, right? You could dream up all these ideas and you could doodle them on a piece of paper and have these sketches, but like to actually execute them and, and turn it into an actual reality, it's uh it's something that it's so impressive and it's the the city, it's a it's a landmark, right? I think it's it's something that, that the city it's proud of and it's a stamp and it's it's just whenever you talk about the city now i think that has to be in sort of the top three to five things to do when you come to the city it is a destination that not only locally people obviously gravitate towards but also as we move forward here uh you know nationally and, and even globally it's going to be a destination for people when they come here it's just a it's an amazing thing man it's a, it's an amazing uh, execution <laughs> that 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 happened. So congrats on that. I want to obviously get into a little bit of the curveball that everybody has been thrown here and the transition from whiskey and alcohol and distilling what you guys are great at, right? To then taking this total 180 into hand sanitizer. And we've seen sort of these companies around the country start to do that. But I really just kind of want to understand like the inside workings of when did, when did it like even first occur to you that one, you could do it right. Was, what did you see other companies like that inspired you to do it? Did somebody, an employee come to you and say, Hey, we should do this. Was your wife just like, Hey, can we do this? Like, how does it even come into the consciousness of like, let's totally shift our entire business to this. Like just take us through that in the office of the decisions being made there. Yeah. So my wife is actually our brand director. So she oversees our marketing department. So everywhere that you've ever seen our logo, every finish in our building, anything that is a general look that is the lifestyle brand of Jay Rieger and Co is her doing. Mm -hmm. um, she's not the, she's not our creative director, but she oversees our creative director. So it's her guidance in terms of everything. So everything goes through her more or less. And that's a good yeah. marriage tip as well. Uh, so she, uh, you know, when this all really was on the infancy stages of it, and I will say like early March, late uh, February, went to Home Depot one morning at, you know, 6am and bought, uh, they had three industrial, industrial spray bottles that you fill with whatever you want. Right. And our production team put some overproof gin in those spray bottles. And I said, Hey, just, just use this as spraying stuff down for sanitization. And everyone thought it was funny and cute. And we, you know, posted it online and we were actually using it, but we were never planning on right. doing anything with it. And some people were like, I'd buy that. 
and it was fun and you know it's like great then once this sort of began call it you know right in the middle of the month we had you know the first time that i think it happened there was a distillery on the west coast maybe portland and they were doing you know they were like hey we're doing 100 little one ounce two ounce bottles of hand sanitizer and then you saw another one do it as well you know 100 small ounce or one ounce bottles or whatever and it's such a small scale that that's not what we are and you don't really think about it from a business standpoint when it's something that small. So I was asked a few times and I was like, God, it's just no thanks. Like, I don't want to get into that. Like, it's not worth our employees time. And I mean, we were cutting costs viciously at that moment in time. Yeah. Just trying to like do the basics up front so that you can survive. Right. And from that, that led into um, my wife got an email from somebody, you know, maybe a few days later that said, this would have been early in the week of what was it the 15 14 15 16 like the 17th or 18th of march something around then uh that email was from a nursing home in kansas city and the woman who was the director said we literally have no hand sanitizer and we have no leads on hand sanitizer there's a distillery doing this in um on the west coast can you please just do this for us and that really led into what if we just do this and we actually just bull by the horns and say how do we ride this yeah and so we started playing around with it and i can't remember if we made a post or what it was but people exploded Mm -hmm. and we realized immediately that this was something that people were in desperate need of right and so with the light started to shine of while we were struggling to figure out how we were going to keep everyone, I mean, our entire staff is looked at as our family. And it's a nice thing about having a you know small business, family run type thing. And all of us love being with each other all the time. And we were all pretty scared of, God, if this gets really bad, you know, the company might not be around, everything that right. we love about life might be different. And right. everyone wanted to fight like hell for all of us to get to stay together. So we started looking at, what to do and when we sort of brought this to everyone's attention of like hey i think we can do this and here's sort of the plan immediately the complete buy-in from everybody and it was unlike anything we had at the time 95 people that were in some capacity on the payroll that was about 53 people were full-time every single person um, that was full-time is still full-time and we now have about 12 to 15 more people that have become full-time since and the rest were like i don't want to deal with hand sanitizer you know i have health concerns whatever it was right you know people that just natural attrition out but the rest of the group just came together and just created this bond and we just started everybody was taking good directive everyone was being creative everyone was being no one was being confrontational i guess which was the most important thing but you know we really wanted to take care of everyone and everyone saw that we were trying to do that but everyone also understood the gravity of what was actually going on and how severe this was going to be. And it was truly a, we're either going to bond and come together and survive this as a group, or we're going to be like so many others out there and we're going to get fractured. And so just having everyone's mentality be in the same boat without really providing any incentive other than quality of life and what you want everything to be and promising them, if we can make this, will promise that we're going to provide meals for everyone and we're going to keep benefits going and we're going to keep payroll and all of those things. And with how hard everyone's worked together, we've been able to do every single one of those. And so, I mean, seven days a week, we have three meals a day at the distillery. And so we kind of joke a little bit and say that 
our employees don't need to go to the grocery store because <laughs> we provide them all their food. And so it's a way that almost keeps us even safer uh, around here at the distillery. But yeah, I mean, everything just really moved. And the day that we really understood that it was a real thing was we were going to do a public sale on Friday, the Friday, the 20th of March. We were doing a uh, public sale day at the distillery. Again, just what's, do people even want this product? You have no idea. And right. we were going to start selling at 11 a.m. And at about 10 a.m., we had we had to call police because there were so many cars and there were multiple news helicopters circling our building. And the line was about two miles long of cars of people trying to get in line to buy this. So it was a, a bizarre moment. And then we did it sale again that next Saturday and it was even crazier. So we realized at that time that this was going to become a real thing and, you know, procuring what your labels are going to look like and your bottles and consistent supplies you know, those are all things that we had to work through and you know, fortunately we're through it but you know that period of time of call it tuesday march 17th through the end of saturday march 21st was the craziest <laughs> five days in the history of mankind for every single person that wore a jay rieger and co badge on those days what what and pardon obviously my ignorance here but like you talking about the labeling and, and sort of the just getting the production out and having the lines and the helicopters. But like, what about just making the sanitizer? Is that a massive shift from normal processes? Is, is it, was that part harder, easier than you thought? Like just even actually creating the product right at mass scale. Is yeah, so totally... I mean, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, a handful of components where, you know, we don't like, we have no input on hydrogen peroxide, right? Like you just have to buy that and source that. So we had to find a source on that. So right. we were finding sources with small amounts. Now we've got a source that sells it to us in 330 gallon totes. Mm -hmm. um, denaturing agents, you know, we started with isopropyl alcohol and now we have another thing called DB40. And so, you know, it's a, you know, once you found that, then it was a lot easier. You know, I mean, even on the alcohol side, we started as just using our vodka and, you know, doing high proof <laughs> vodka. And, you know, now it's the source on alcohol is a lot easier in order to keep up with everything. But the biggest thing that, this was the same thing that bit us when we started our company back in 2014 was you can think about all those things, but the packaging is what makes or breaks you. And what I mean by the packaging is not the actual vessel, but how you get the liquid into the bottle. Mm. Because we have, you know, tanks out the wazoo here at yep. the facility. I mean, we've got tanks that go from, um, you know, 55 gallons up to 12,000 gallons. So tanks agitators all that all that's fine we've got all that covered but it's how do you get the liquid into the bottle and like i said it was exactly what we forgot about in the first phase of starting the company up back in 2014 <laughs> and it's definitely the piece that we overlooked and so i mean we started out with pitchers and funnels wow right i mean how crazy is that and because the other thing about this was we wanted to make sure what we were doing was effective but we also didn't want to spend money on something that could go away overnight and right. it's broken. And that's the biggest fear that we have right now with this is what if big conglomerates come in and they just say, great, we're just going to eat all of our uh, hand sanitizer market back up. And we're trying to really pose the question to the public now of what we're doing isn't just like a let's try to do well at this. It's a we're keeping 65 people that are based in Kansas City employed. We don't have bottling machines because right. that's counterintuitive to the exercise. And so people when they're making their decisions right now and buying their hand sanitizer, yeah, you can buy something that's less expensive 
that's roughly the same quantity for us made by some conglomerate that's just trying to steal profit and it does it by bottling machine and has, you know, eight employees at their entire mass factory and they're making millions and millions and millions of bottles a year. Or you can buy it from us where you know the money is keeping 65 people gainfully employed and families from going hungry during this time period. And not to mention what we donate to the community around you with the sanitizer, but also what we do when it's just normal times and what we donate to the community. And so it's more or less now we're in the time period where it's every decision and every buying decision at this point is so much more impactful than it is in normal times because every dollar that you spend is a vote as to what do you want to be around when this is all done because you have the ability to make that change and decide, do I want this company to be around because I like how they reacted, I like how they treated their employees, they're a good public citizen as a company, I want them in my city for a long time. I want them in my country for a long time. Or do you say, I don't really care. Just give me the cheapest thing, which the argument there also is, I hope you don't drink the cheapest alcohol all the time. <laughs> no, I think that, listen, man, you nailed it. That's what, you know, we talk about all the time on, on the site, on the show. It's what you buy as a consumer. We have so much power that sometimes I don't think we necessarily realize the power that we hold in our dollar. And a lot of the times, it, it it's sad to say, but a lot of the times it can be more powerful than our vote. And I think right now, it, it's a perfect example of like, just what you said. I mean, I think now that you guys are going to be in grocery stores, correct? So people don't have to necessarily yeah. drive all the way. So that's obviously going to be a huge thing that people can go to their normal sort of habits and, and kind of get get the sanitizer in the stores is that now or is that going to happen like next week or something like uh, that? yeah i mean it's I, I think the first deliveries were done today i want to i want to talk about a little bit about sort of the the community aspect right and, and how you still the company still tries to aim at impacting the community even though that the company itself is trying to survive it's like when you get that email from a nursing home right like has there been more emails like that whether it's nursing homes whether it's schools or whether it's uh, hospitals, what, what are you hearing from the, the local community? I, I guess now is a little different than it was two weeks ago, right? But what was that like to sort of hear those emails coming through or phone calls being like, how yeah, is it possible that we have to, like, we're the ones that have to like totally. kind of do this because nobody else is, right? Like, it's crazy. Yeah, no, I mean, like what you just said there, and more or less you're describing a weight that's thrown on your chest. Yeah, and totally. you're realizing that you're the only one that can do the thing that everyone needs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and again, we did it and we just hope that everyone doesn't, you know, just turn their back when there's mass produced product at the time. We don't want to be in this business forever, but right. you know, while it's necessary to keep every single person employed and us alive, it's definitely something that we want to try to ask for in terms of business, which we're not really an ask for business type brand. We're more of a come here whenever you're ready and fall in love with what we produce whenever you're good on your own terms. So in considering everything, I think that there's a lot of, uh, the first week, I've never cried as much as I have in my whole life. And, you know, it was multiple times a day, like some days just collapsing on the ground in tears because mm -hmm. of, you know, the fear of your business is going to fail. And everything's going to get foreclosed on. or are going to be destroyed. And the community around you is going crazy and up in arms. And, you know, that was at the time when we were able to see a lot more of what was actually going on in the real world than what was actually being reported yet. And we were really boots on the ground. So we were seeing just how bad it was going to be. 
And it was really, really sad. And just based on how sad it was, that sort of continued to create those emotional reactions for us. But you know, I'll never forget, it was uh, one morning that following week, look at my calendar again, something like the 24th, 25th, maybe. Oh no, I know when it was. It was that Saturday, the 21st. That's right. It was that morning. I got down here and we were going to start selling at 11 a.m. doing a public sale. And there were uh, two cars when I got here at seven that were already in line. And I got upstairs to my desk and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to make these people wait. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, let's just get them checked out and get them on their way. And the way we always have done this is, you know, most people can afford this product. And so the people that can afford it pay for the people to work and make it and pay for the people that can't afford it. Yep. So walked up to this one car and guy is, you know, pretty much in tears and he's an older man and by older, you know, maybe late sixties and just mm-hmm. says, my mother's 89. She lives with me. We have no hand sanitizer. We have no soap. You know, I know you have a one bottle limit. Is there any way I can have two bottles? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll absolutely <laughs> take care of you. Like we're, we're, we're good here. And I start walking to this other car and I just burst into tears and you just realized how big of a situation this was in that someone in that particular position came down at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning to wait in line to what they thought they were going to have to wait for at least four hours just to get hand sanitizer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and went to the other car and the guy was so nice and the guy just goes, I only want to buy one bottle of hand sanitizer, but I'm going to give you a hundred dollars for it so you can help other people out. And the mixture of those two conversations that happened so briefly was breathtaking. Yeah. And it was something that it showed you how incredibly cool humanity can be. Now there's also hundreds of examples of how terrible humanity can be. From this thing that we've, <laughs> yep. But needless to say, it, being able to see that and feel it um, and understand it and experience it, I guess, because this is unlike a time that we'll ever have in our entire lives ever again. And seeing how society reacts is mm-hmm. a psychology that it's, we're in the middle of an experiment that you can't conduct on any terms. You know, you have to wait for the opportunity to conduct an experiment like this and really see and understand what human psychology is all about. And it's a, it's a bizarre phenomenon. It's an odd scenario where the mass separation of us all is bringing us closer together. It, it's a, it's a very, it's a very odd time where I do feel like people are becoming closer as they are separated. And it's a really odd thing, especially in the digital society over the last decade or so, we've, we've sort of naturally kind of sort of separated from each other in a physical standpoint, right? And it's now we're all earning to get back to like <laughs> hugging each other, right? And, and handshakes and, and just just being around other human beings. It's it's just weird. It's just this weird phenomenon that I don't know that we'll ever experience. Like, even if it happens again, it's not going to feel this way, right? Because we went through it. So, but yeah. th- this is, it's such a rare thing that everybody experiences, right? It, it, it's, that's different because like 9-11, like, yeah, we all experienced, but not like New York, like Hurricane Katrina, like the Gulf Coast really felt that, right? Like New Orleans, Mississippi felt that. We, you know, other people couldn't feel that way about that, like Joplin tornadoes and, you know, like 
you could feel for them, but it's not an experience that you can say how you we really feel. But like we're all in it now. It's just we're bonded. You know, we're bonded for for life in in a weird way that uh, hopefully when we as we get through this and, you know, there will be immense tragedy. There already has been, obviously, where people will see this time differently than others. Right. It's going to be one of the darkest times in their life where others it'll be an inspirational point in their life. Like you, it, it felt like on those two cars, you got pumped with an adrenaline stick, right? A little bit where it's like, it, it just invigorates you a little more and say, okay, we're doing the right thing here. Like it, 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 we're taking the right steps. This is at this time in our history, in our company's history, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And when you feel that, that that's a relief, right? All the other chaos going on. But when you feel that inside of you, that this is what you need to be doing right now, that comfort alone is going to help everybody around you right all the employees all the families that come up all these people that aren't experiencing this i mean they're never going to get they're good those two cars are telling the same story right to two other people right and it, and so on and so on so it's uh it's a beautiful thing man and i'm i'm so happy that you know i could be a part of this city at this time and and, and see the maturation of this and you know obviously it's a, there's still a long way to go here <laughs> But hopefully you're starting to to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Is that is that kind of where you're at now? Like give us a sense where where you're at personally and, and where the company is and, and what you see the next, let's say like three months look like. Yeah, I what mean you, what you hope they look like, I guess. Right. No, I mean I mean I so in my business, I'm the pessimist at this company. And okay. the person that runs the company being the pessimist is good at times and it's bad at others. But for us and where you know seeing what we see understanding what we understand I'll qualify this with everything could be completely different with respect to all the antibodies and the studies that are going behind those right now and so that's that's the wild card that's a positive wild card so what I'm going to say to you in qualifying that is assuming that that's a zero and that doesn't have anything to play with you know first off I don't think that you know, a lot of people are saying this is going to change the way society interacts with each other forever. And I just don't see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I see that everyone is naturally emotional and naturally passionate about each other and being around people and shaking hands and hugging and fist bumps and, you know, sitting close to friends, drinking beers, you know, playing poker, whatever it is. We're going to get back to that because that's not the stuff that caused this virus right right that's what spread it yep. but it's not what caused it and so i just think that that's not right but you know the biggest fear that i have is truthfully and i've always said this to people since the very first day the problem with this virus is as long as it exists somewhere it exists of course and so i mean it can be gone from everywhere except for some remote village and make it crazy make it nepal and yep. You know, this remote village, they are tour guides on the Himalayas. And some person from some other country goes to climb, contracts it from this guy, goes back to their country, and you start all over again. Yep. Um, that's the biggest fear, I think, is just the fear of really not knowing how long this is going to go. And because of that, you know, without the antibodies really coming through and without vaccine, flu shot, whatever you want to call it, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think that truthfully, we're we're really nervous that the on-premise business is going to potentially be destroyed for, you know, I've, I've told our team that it might not be until the spring of 21. 
when we actually open our facility again. Wow. And I would love for it to be different than that, but you also have to keep in mind that you need a crowd in order to open again. And so just being able to be open versus, you know, the, the whole no more than 10 people in a space, for example, which is what it was initially. Well, your, your right. business is, is closed. If that's no, the case. Yeah. I mean, there's no, no business yeah, can survive that. Yeah. No point in even being open at that level. So you have to be allowed to be open. Then you have to have people that want to be. Yeah. And I think that that want is the biggest question mark right now. And I just don't know where this is really going to shake out in terms of that want and that desire. And that's why I'm hopeful on things like antibody studies. But the identity of the individuals that want to come here, you also have to consider your own reputation, your own business's reputation. You know, do you want to welcome people in and potentially contribute to keeping this virus alive and going? Well, that's solving a need from the people, right? And you're giving them an out and a place right. to feel normal again. Yeah, there's there's a delicate balance there. And it's also, it, you know, when facilities like yours open and others, it, is the experience going to be the same, right? The, the amazing experience that you built, are people going to like, as a company, do you have to think about, hey, do we take people's temperatures as they walk into the door? Like, do you have a, some type of screen thing that people have to walk through? And it, it there's just all kinds of things where it's like, the airports were great, right? It was nothing and then something happens and then we had to, all of a sudden, the airport has become a hassle to fly. You have to go through the screening process. You have to go. So that's sort of what is the city or the state going to not mandate, but, you know, look, at any point they could say, hey, if you're a business that has a couple hundred people walk through your facility every day, these are the things you have to put in place until further notice, right? And it's like, as a customer or whatever, it's like, wow, do I want to go there and have to like wait in line as I get scanned through this thing to walk? And it's just, there's just, you're right. There's just so many unanswered questions from the mom and pop diner to, you know, a massive distillery to Arrowhead Stadium to Royal Stadium. What is that stuff might look a little different when you have 50, 60,000 people in one area that that's going to be very, to me, that's going to be further out. Facilities like yours, I think, will be sooner than 2021. I'm hoping, I think these sports teams are going to have the issue of having 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people at one time, unless we have the antibody test, unless we have some type of thing where people feel comfortable to go, right? It's, I'm a little bit more optimistic, but I see the pessimists. I, I see, I see where there's things that can hurt other businesses where others might not be affected, right? We see businesses thriving in this environment, right? All the digital tools, online stuff. So different economies will be created. Ones will fall by the wayside. So it's just, it's only time will tell, right? But it's, uh, I'm proud to be a part of the city right now and see all the companies coming together and you're sort of leading the way and what you're doing. As a consumer, we're going to make the choice to <laughs> to buy your product, like when it, in stores and stuff, like to do it and just even give it out right because like you said before some people have the ability to buy this stuff get their easy access go in and get it but we also do have a responsibility to to get it to people who who can't do that right if they don't have a car they they're disabled they can't get places and uh public transit sort of down and so i i think it's a responsibility for all of us here is to try to get through it together and we need companies like yours to be a catalyst to offer something that we can disperse to the community in a ton of different ways, right? So one of, one of the coolest stories before we go, one of the cool stories uh, so far that I've had was 
there's a local company that uh, was buying 600 bottles for their employees, the central type business. Yep. And they go, but we'd like to buy 700 and we want to, we see how you guys are always supporting the police. And so we, we want to take them to a police station. Can you connect us with someone that we can drop these off with? And it was just like, dang, that's so cool. Yeah. And we called some KCPD majors and they were like, good timing because one of our officers, this was a couple of weeks ago, they were like, one of our officers tested positive And so we're all freaked out now. And so we'd absolutely love this. You know, it's just the constant communication of all the types of organizations that we do support throughout the years. And then someone paid attention on an ongoing basis and literally picked based on the posts that they had seen in yep. various social medias over the past several years and said, I see you support them. I want to support them. Awesome. And it was really, really cool to see. I'll end on this, I promise. I don't keep you too long. What has it been like talking to to other I mean, we look, we have a actually have a growing distillery community here, right? And a brewery community in Kansas City. It's grown over, you know, the last I would say five years to five to seven years or so. Have you spoken to to any other, you know, founders at breweries and distilleries? What what are sort of they dealing with? Are they dealing with a lot of the same anxiety that, that you guys are dealing with? Have they sort of tried to shift into something else? Like, what are you hearing from sort of the the distilling and brewing community? So, well, so like a, a stat and just talking about, you know, most of the distillers and breweries in Kansas City make most of their money from um, on-site revenue. Yep. And so that was sort of a way that we differentiated initially early on. But, you know, looking at the restaurant scene as a whole, which would include most distilleries and breweries, you know, the longer this goes on, the harder it's going to be for them to try to come back. Yeah. Because at some point, even some of these government programs, I think the breweries, I've already heard that, uh, and I'm talking national, not local, yeah. somewhere about like already they expect to date that if the economy got back to normal May 1st, about 15% of all breweries wouldn't reopen distilleries that number hasn't come out yet but it's got to be somewhere in that same range and so you know when you lay off your entire staff early on it's really hard to recover because everyone that counted on you is like god i guess we're just part of the trend and so i think that it's really scary from that standpoint you know once we started really going on the sanitizer um we had a lot of other distilleries in town that uh, started doing that as well, uh, which was good to see. But you don't really have many distilleries across the country that are doing it at scale. And right. so that's kind of, that's the thing that people forget about is all that. And then the other side of it is like the cost. If you're trying to feed 65 families, you got to charge more than, right. the, you know, if there's two owners and they let go of their whole staff and they're just doing it, they don't have a very high cost structure. Right. So, you know, it's who are you trying to really support in them? I mean, it's, it's our entire city against everyone else. And even people that want the sanitizer right now outside of the market, I always say, you know, absolutely. If we have spare capacity in a certain week, we'll absolutely get some to you guys. But this stays here first and foremost. Like my hospitals need this. Yeah. And unfortunately, I got to make sure that we're taking care of everybody. So I think that the, the moral of the story really with what you're asking is the longer this goes on, the worse it's going to get. And I think that breweries and distilleries that, don't really have a very big distribution presence of their product, you know, they're literally sitting at zero right now. Yeah. And it's going to be significantly more difficult for those businesses to come back along with 
restaurants in general. And I think that when this all settles out, truly every single day longer than it lasts is going to be another place that you knew about that's not going to come back. And it's going to go on and on and on. And I mean, if this, if we don't reopen until late summer, which is sort of like the optimistic viewpoint that I'm looking at, you know, a late summer opening, who knows how many restaurants are actually going to be gone and done. But you think about government stimulus, government programs, things along those lines, they, they can't go on for a year. Of course. Right. So, you know, as, as soon, even if people are taking advantage of them now and plan for you just hope that you can change that methodology so that you understand and you know that you're going to be okay when it's all said and done and finding out ways to really survive during that time period. Because right now, unfortunately, that's what this is. This is a survival of more or less the fittest. And how do you lean your company out, but take care of everyone so that you know you can just restart everything as soon as you need to do that. And it's, I always tell everyone, I was a math major. And when you add too many variables to an equation, it becomes really hard to solve. And the toughest time with business in terms of a variable is time. And when you don't know what time is, then it's really tough to make any form of a logical decision. Last question, I swear, I promise, I promise. Is, do you see that coming out of this, any laws might change in the industry that allows these companies to come back in some way? Because I know there's some different laws around distribution and canning and bottling where, you know, a lot of these, you know, smaller batch places don't have the distribution because they have to to hire like a, a representative from, you know, a company and, and they have to go sell a form. They can't do anything. Do you see the possibility? Because I, I feel like that could help some of these smaller ones if they're able to, to do sort of their own distribution. I, again, I don't know. I just, my brother's sort of in the industry and he kind of explains this stuff to me sometimes, but I don't know if, if there's, do you foresee any laws that could be passed that is, that are maybe, uh, that, that can help stimulate these, these facilities back up and running? Well, so, I mean, sort of a two-part answer to answer your question directly, you know, when this was really getting going, I was talking to Roy Blunt's team um, he's our U.S. one of our U.S. senators from Missouri. I was talking to his team pretty much every single day, multiple times a day, and really giving them a small business perspective. I started more or less a call group with a bunch of small business uh, CEOs, and we would talk every single day. And one of the things that I recommended early on to them as a list of several law changes, stimulus ideas, et cetera, et cetera, one of them was to change the uh, deduction on for businesses that are expensing meals. And right now the federal IRS mm. law is 50% deduction for all meals, 0% for entertainment. Yep. And that's the lowest hanging fruit when we get done with this. Of if you're trying to ensure people are spending money and not making economic-based decisions because of what's taxable and what's not, kill it, make it 100% deduction because they're spending money at a business that yep. was destroyed during this and that was something that has gained a lot of traction, I know. And I actually just saw something about it that the Senate is really talking about putting that into tax law um, when this all gets said and done. So I think that would be a big one. But I think that the, the biggest thing that you are going to see is that, you know, a comment that you said earlier, building that along with this topic, you, know, you said that we're all in this together and we're all bonding because of this. 
It's not necessarily true for people in certain governmental positions. You know, the people that didn't understand the humanitarian switch as to when to turn something off and when to focus on something else of, you know, uh, like a lot of regulators, we've heard about this across the country. A lot of regulators have been coming around during this time for ones really trying to, how do you say it? Trying to exert their will mm-hmm. during times like this. And to your point, I think that a lot of the governors across the country and senators and congressmen that have been slowly hearing about this, no one wants to deal with it right now, but I think you're going to see a lot of change a lot of potential humanitarian clauses thrown into laws and regulations so that regulators have the ability to make more or less humanitarian decisions as to something that they want to enforce heavily or not during times and not have repercussions from it. Give me, uh, give me an example. Give me an example what you, what you mean by that. So, for example, um, one that we've fought hard for in the state of Missouri, bottled cocktails, you know, during this time. Yep. Restaurants have no business. It's takeout. So in a way for a restaurant to be able to encourage someone to come there as they say, we're, we're doing this cocktail tonight to take home. Yep. Well, every other state has made that legal. And the governor put out an order in the state of Missouri to enable all departments, including the Department of Public Safety, which oversees the alcohol tobacco control, to uh, not enforce regulations that can be helpful to employment and stimulating the economy and things that don't pose any threat to um, public health and public safety. Again, almost every other state has authorized this and they're all doing it for their restaurants. Right. The head of the ATC told the governor's office to pound sand because they don't believe that the governor's order applies to them. And so I've heard rumblings that there is some very bad blood going on right now because of that position. And you know, it's something that will get dealt with when this, like I said, is all said and done. Um, but you're hearing about these things all across the city, or sorry, all across the country. And you know, the regulators that are people and treat their citizens like people and treat the uh, citizens and put the states in good light and do the things that they know actually matter versus, versus not. I think that you're gonna see a lot of focus on that when this is all said and done and realizing the changes that need to be made overall to governments and enforcements and every little bit along the way. That's that's what I'm hoping, man. I'm hoping we get some 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 sensibility here. But I, I'm from New Orleans, so a lot oh. of these alcoholic laws are, are are different for me here, right? Because it's it's very lax. It's very lax down there with uh you know takeout and even <laughs> drive through. You don't have alcohol laws in New Orleans. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I'd like to you know and look there there's some obviously some some issues that come with that but look i mean we're a smart society man we can adapt to things and and look there's there's i think there's obviously things that the low-hanging fruit as you said i think there are some obvious things that can be done that will obviously not even for right now but stimulate the economy back for years because this is going to take a while just having a law come into to action for six months is is not what we need you know we need long-term sustainability for for a lot of this stuff so I appreciate you taking the time, man. I, I know that it's, it's it's been hectic, and and I can only imagine what what you and your team going through. And you know, just wanted to say say thank you from 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 me personally, but you know, all of our community, our cause artists, man, and, and the community of Kansas City, and, and you know, even nationally. I mean, people hear this in South America, and Asia, and Europe. So it, it's good to be a, shed a light 
Kansas City a little bit and what you guys are doing. So best of luck, uh, you know, for the next few months and obviously next few days, weeks. But, uh, you know, we'll be praying for you guys. So I appreciate it.